Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, my name is Monty Warden. I'm with Alice Firing, who is an American journalist and author and specialist in natural wine. Alice, hi. Hello, Monty. How did you get into natural wine? How did I get natural wine? Just because of taste. And somewhere in the late 90s, I realized my favorite wine started disappearing. It was the beginning to be the height of wine internationalization and globalization of taste. And I was selecting certain wines that still had uh, wines of life and wines of place and wines that spoke to me. And then I did my research and I found out, hey, most of these are made with minimal intervention. So when you say selecting wine, selecting wine for what, for a wine shop or for a restaurant? For taste. You know, certainly. I started writing about wine in 1990 and I realized that my favorite wines were disappearing. So I went on this kind of mad dash to find out whether I just had to switch to spirit right away, whether there were any wines left that I still liked. This all happened with more force when I was writing the Food and Wine magazine official wine guide in 2001 and I had to do so much concentrated tasting that I realized that wine was disappearing. The wines that I loved were disappearing. So when you say disappearing, you don't mean like disappearing off the face of the earth, you mean just getting blasted by oak or? They were disappearing into sameness and there was very little vintage variation. Everything tasted of new oak. It was the big new oak thing. So it was a lot of cherry vanilla, a lot of wood splints and a lot of technology to hasten a process. Well, actually, that's why I wrote um, wrote my first book, The Battle for Wine and Love. Uh, that came out in 20, 2008, but I started writing it in 2005 because Northern Italy was disappearing. There was really very few places on earth that I could drink except for the Loire and certain places in France. And that is where still these kind of wines at that time existed. And it was only under deeper investigation that I realized these wines were natural. So. Right. So when you say natural, that's such a hot term and a, and a divisive term. What do you exactly mean by what makes a wine natural? Starting with organic, at least viticulture, a non-chemical based viticulture, which is essential, then carrying that non-intervention or do no harm into the wine. So basically you're doing the very minimum. So it is, you're not exerting extreme control over the wine. Nothing added, nothing taken away, maybe a little bit of sulfur. No extreme processes, um, no microox, no reverse osmosis. You know, you're not acidifying, you're not adding velcrin to get rid of um, Brettanomyces, you're not yeasting, you're not doing any anything. What about temperature control, things like that? I don't like extreme temperature control. I find that is doing a a yeast selection. But I think it is essential to make a healthy wine to be able to make it in an environment where there is, if you're not lucky enough to have a cold cellar, you have to do something. I think a lot of people get into trouble by not taking that into consideration when they make wine. That's one reason that making quivery wine, wine in buried on forest, so great, especially in hot areas like Kakheti in Georgia, because it is basic temperature control. So that's kind of, that's a real back to basic stuff. But are you saying um, the natural wine movement traditionally has been associated with smaller producers because because sort of hand-making the wine or hand-sort of unmaking the wine, if you like, is mm-hmm. probably more suited to smaller producers. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Definitely is associated with smaller producers, but it is very possible maybe to make a little bit more controlled wine as a large producer, but it's perfectly possible to make a natural wine at being a large producer. Like I said, natural enough. Maybe you're using a pied cuve in 
instead of every tank being spontaneously fermenting. So pied de cuve for anyone is, is basically getting some um, berries from your vineyard, crushing them in a bucket, letting the yeast start working, and you can use that to season each yes, e- each tank to make it ferment properly. Yes, so you'll use it in each tank, and maybe it adds a little bit of continuity between each tank. You know, I don't have much problem with that, with because if it allows a larger person, I mean, a larger producer, to make a natural wine, like fine, can carry these extremities to too far an extreme but it is possible for a large producer to make a natural wine okay so one of the criticisms of of natural wine is natural wine says it's kind of against standardization right wines that have been heavily processed with um, a lot of technology and new oak and things like that so a merlot and a cabernet and or a chardonnay will all pretty much taste the same they've got this big blast of oak what about the criticism that natural wine can be also standardized if for example you have a loire red a bordeaux red and a rhone red who will have a taste of uh, bretanomyces for example is that not a form of standardization if you're making a natural wine there are going to be some years that you have some some years that you don't have some breath, you're going to have some years where you have more acidity than others. I've never really heard the notion that all natural wines can taste the same. I have heard the notion that all natural white wines taste like apple cider, which is a gross generalization. I actually reject that. So who's drinking these natural wines? Because there is a huge and growing market for this this sort of uh, natural trend. Who's who's drinking them and why? People are drinking them because they're finding excitement in them and a great sense of adventure. Natural wine will not be made with a certain mind set about how to achieve a taste the way a conventional wine will. So just because of that, because every vintage will be different, because every often there'll be bottle variation as well, it adds to the excitement. I think also people are drinking them because you do experience less of a hangover. For better or for worse, it means that you can drink more. Whether or not it's the buzz, you can keep the night going a lot longer. And people like the way they feel inside their body. Because it tastes good. That's always the basic thing. Do you think this idea that obviously we're in economically difficult times and the fact that one of the great things about natural wine is they do tend to be sort of lower in alcohol so that you can actually finish a bottle. If you paid all that money for a bottle, you want to finish it, right? You don't want to, after one glass, go, really oaky, can't finish the rest of that. This is true. And not only that, if you don't finish it, if it's a natural wine and it's made with very lower, low sulfur, it should mostly taste really good the next day. Without sulfur, they actually keep longer than bottles with sulfur. That is one of the fallacies that get reported that a bottle with sulfur will last longer. Not exactly true. So when you're traveling abroad, what is your typical schedule if you're visiting vineyards and wineries in, say, France or Italy? How does it? How does a day in the life of Alice abroad go? Well, it's all very different, and I try not to pack too many visits into one day. It depends what my objective is. I don't like doing more than three visits a day. I three wineries a day. Three wineries a day. And just, you know, sometimes, I, especially if I'm with my friend Pascaline, who is here today, she'll insist on like five or six. That's too much because I need, and you'll understand this, time between visits to sit down and with my thoughts. And also, I would much rather have some extra time on the day than have to stop a conversation. If I'm on my own schedule, I really don't like taking a, a meeting before 10 because I really think well in the morning. So it's like 10 and I don't like stopping for lunch. So I'd rather possibly just go on through, grab a cup of tea. So three visits, I like time to drive around. It's not going to, it's going to sound really boring. 
Have you thought but about making wine, making your own wine? I have made wine, and I am thinking about making wine in the future, I'm, but more as a business as opposed to my specifically. I did make wine, which I wrote about in um, Naked Wine, and I found it, unless I'm growing my grapes, pretty boring. I know people actually like the idea, but I think people who are merchants and buying their own grapes, there's a lot of time on your hands, and you, there's a disconnect from nature, so it's not my thing. But I am considering, I do want to, I want to make the first natural kosher wines out there what makes a wine kosher in a nutshell in a nutshell it basically has to be picked by orthodox jews and only handled by orthodox jews and there has to be somebody observing it to make sure that nothing unkosher like blood goes into it basically all natural wines are kosher and having been brought up orthodox i wouldn't be allowed to make the wine because i'm no longer orthodox and i think this is ridiculous and i don't believe in it but yet i want people who are orthodox to be able to see what i write about and to experience natural wine so you're quite happy to sort of trying to push at barriers and break walls down and, and try and shake things up yeah well i don't see the alternative i think sometimes you have to i'm by nature extremely shy but if i get angry enough i stop being shy you have been described as uncompromising. Is that is that a fair comment? It wasn't no. my comment, by the way. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I'm totally, you know, it's, I am not uncompromising. If people think that I only drink hardcore natural wines and I have no trouble with um, natural wines in my newsletter. I Well, actually, I do have trouble with unnatural wines, but I don't have any trouble with wines that have sulfur. I cover wines that have sulfur in my newsletter. For me, that's maybe 50, 60 total. It is true that when I'm getting up to 100 ppm added sulfur in a wine, that's like too much for me. Oh, really, I'm just looking for a good wine that has a lot of life to it. And I am uncompromising where if it doesn't taste good, I don't drink it. What would a wine that doesn't taste good mean? Would that mean one that's been grown with weed killers and pesticides and had enzymes added to it and all sorts of stuff? Or is it is it more about the taste rather than the process? I think at this point, my taste is aligned with the process. Actually, at this point, I could pretty much, um, and watch if I say it, somebody's going to do, can you blind taste, uh, you know, viticulture. But I got into this because of selecting organic grapes and organic wine. Basically, it is going back to taste and then the process suits and fits my philosophy that I believe deeply. I mean, in the beginning, there was this sort of, uh, when natural wine started coming on the scene, there was a bit of a, a sense that um, because organic wine could be made with the addition of sulfites, which right. is a preservative allowed right. to improve shelf, shelf life of wine, and natural wine makers saying we, we use very low or, or no sulfites at all. And there was a sort of a stage where sort of quotes, organic producers were not saying they're organic anymore. They, they became natural because of the, mainly because of the sulfite issue. Right. So do you think that's a bit confusing for people? You know, biodynamic, organic, natural, where are the crossover Points. Well, I think biodynamic is not as confusing. And right now, I think that a biodynamic wine is probably the best um, stamp that the consumer can look for because it actually means something. And I think organic wine does not mean anything, especially with the new EU regulations that are, am I allowed to say bullshit in here? Or which are, which are totally, you thank you, which are totally bullshit. Um, I'm very much against the EU regulations. Because the American one is much, the American rules governing organics are, you are, do have an organic oh, Organic bit, wine means no added sulfites, right? Yeah, I know. But in either case, an organic wine can have every trick of the book thrown at it, but you're not allowed to have sulfites. But you're allowed to use any ingredient as long as it's organic. That is not a wine that I want. I don't eat my food that way. Wine is food. Very much believe in that. And Are you a vegetarian? I, I am a vegetarian. Do you object to horses working in vineyards and things like that? No. Some people do, don't they? They like to work. 
Yeah. Okay. And what a better place to work. You know, no, I don't know of any horse that likes to laze around. They're the work animals. They seem to be quite happy. Do you get offended when people say that you're, you're, you're looking backwards, you're not looking towards the future, you have an outdated way of thinking? I mean, uh, for the people who are looking forward to when we take our meals from test tubes, I say let them enjoy wines that are made that way as well. Maybe that'll happen in my lifetime out of necessity, but it's not something, even though it's very forward thinking, that I like. Those of us who care about food, look backwards to the honest, pure, delicious food of our ancestors. I don't know of any other, any culture that does not celebrate now the renaissance of foraging and finding food, which is an amazing joy. And it certainly is ancient. I will go back to the future if that is indeed the case. I have had some delicious wines made from forage grapes. And that is possible, though, as an economic model. So dealing with the vine is always an interesting philosophical issue and fun to talk about. Would you like to have your own small vineyard? Yes, I would. Anywhere in the world? Anywhere in the world. Unlimited budget, would... but no, no added sulfites, of you, course. Do you know that I've never actually thought about this? But you must have a favorite place when you're, when you're traveling around. You think, oh, I wish I could just put my roots down here. You know, sometimes it's just aligned with some of your favorite wines, and I think it'd be awesome to have some place in San Joseph. In the Rhone. Oh, yeah, actually, there's there's a place in Georgia, Racha, which I think has some... Well, by, folks, this is Georgia Republic of, not Georgia State of in the U.S., by the way. It has the most amazing mashup of terroir and microclimates. Another one in Georgia is Ateni, which is outside of where Stalin came from, and I was very impressed by the terroir there. So why is Georgia so special for natural natural wine fans? Again, Georgia, Republic of Georgia, Central European Republic. Because it has such... A, you may have understood, and you've brought out, that I have this thing to the past... I feel very much like an ancient soul, and um, I think I'm attracted to antiquity. And there is a link to the ancients in Georgia that very much affects me. So when you say a link to the ancients, what do you mean by that? Uh, why, why, what makes Georgia past. special? And there is a way of making wine that the natural wine makers work there that is very much ego-free, and it's very much letting doing as little as possible and letting the earth speak. The traditional way is to make wine in buried clay vessels called quevery and otherwise known as anfora that they both ferment and raise the wine in. And so typically a white wine will be made like a red wine. So you put the grapes in and you let them do their thing. They stay in the vessel for six to eight months on their skins. And there you go. You take it out and swine. Couldn't be simpler. <laughs> it's uh, remarkable because a lot of people think that clay allows a wine to find its identity sooner. And it's a breathable thing, but also it is a more complete wine sooner. A more complete wine complete. sooner. A lot of times that we're getting wines that are put into the bottle way too early and you're still getting fermentary flavors and aromas. And that never happens with the quivering wine. But to do that, you need to invest obviously because if you know people who make wine want to get their money back generally fairly quickly yeah. so if you can bottle it and sell it fairly quickly and people are happy with it yeah. they're getting their money back and they're not going bankrupt so how what is the motivation economically for winemakers to buy clay vessels which are quite expensive bury them in the ground make the wine as the ancients did um, are they having to sell the wine for a lot more money these natural wines made like that well from Georgia you can have perfectly beautiful wines from uh, 17 to 22 dollars and worth every penny of it so these are these sort of a niche wine that is very popular popular in, uh, say, New York restaurants, or, or are these potentially world-beating in terms of um, sales and distribution? Because they, they've got to be small-scale, right? Oh, they're very small-scale. 
the, the good ones are extremely small scale, but you're getting a lot in, in England. Uh, Japan is a very big market. Denmark is a big market. The United States is a big market. So who's drinking them again in these moments? Is it young people wanting something different? Yeah, people who are like archaeologists. <laughs> there are a lot of people who are interested in it. I was in a place in Astor Wines, and I like seeing people actually look at the Georgian wine section. And I was like, really? The word has gotten out. People are experiencing them by the glass in New York restaurants, and they actually go out and buy them. And so I was standing next to an actually an anthropology professor and he, from NYU, and he said, I had one of these things last night. It was amazing. So basically the future folks of the global wine market is dependent on us educating and creating more archaeologists and anthropologists. Right. <laughs> um, um, anthropologists. Yeah. Anthropos- anthropos- that we'll leave, that, we'll leave, we'll leave that for the biodynamic <laughs> interview yeah alice Faring, it's been a fantastic pleasure to talk to you um very stimulating um you're making waves uh, through your writing and your speaking and you're a real champion of natural wine Lo- lovely to see you lovely to see you Monty. thanks follow italian wine podcast on facebook and instagram <laughs>